Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Albert. I'm the lead pastor of the Tapestry Church Network and uh, always delighted to be here on a Sunday morning. So it was on October 25th, 2014, uh, when my father passed away. So it's hard to imagine that it's been four and a half years since he's been gone. And my dad, if you didn't know, was a pastor. In fact, he was a church planner, so like father, like son. And I remember getting into the car when I was a kid. It was still dark, and we drove through the night, and it was snowing because we lived in Edmonton. And we put down every single chair and prayed over every single chair in the school gym in which the church met. And those are fond memories for me. And in fact, we shared and talked about stuff that when I planted here at the tapestry, he would come when he wasn't speaking elsewhere. He would sit there. He would be really proud. He wouldn't tell me he was proud. I mean, he was a typical Asian dad. Uh, but if anyone asked him, he would say he was a proud member of the tapestry church. And so one thing I didn't really know, I mean, we were close but not super close. One thing I didn't realize was the depth of his faith and his depth of his faith in Jesus until he was diagnosed with cancer and spent the last few months in the hospital. Uh, someone once told me that you can tell a lot about how a person lived by the way that they die. And throughout the entire time that he was in the hospital, he maintained an attitude of gratitude, of compassion, as well as generosity. He thanked every single doctor who came into his uh, room, even if they had bad news for him. Uh, he would thank every single nurse, uh, regardless of whatever. Uh, if they poked him with something, he'd say thank you. In fact, when the nurse asks, Mr. Chu, would you need anything? He would just always point up and say, nope, I don't need anything. I got God. He would actually spend time asking for my phone in order to phone other people to see how they were doing. His Bible was always next to him. And every time I went to visit him, I was not allowed to leave until I laid hands on him and prayed. My dad passed away with this steadfast faith. And as a pastor, I've been around death a lot. I've been in the room when someone breathed their last breath. And I've officiated a number of funerals from the young to the very old grandfather, uh, great-great-grandfather at the age of 96. And I'm always astounded by the faith of those who have not only passed away, but the family and friends that have lost a loved one. I was talking to a palliative nurse one time that worked at the BC Cancer Agency here in Vancouver, and she says unequivocally that people of faith, especially Christians, deal with death better. And it always makes me think, I want to die well. Like, not well off. I that too. <laughs> but I want to die well. Like, not fighting and not kicking and screaming, but I want to die quietly with this steadfast faith that Jesus is looking after me, the same kind of faith that my father displayed. And when I think about my father and I think of the other people that I have met, I think what helped them face death so faithfully was this deep faith in the resurrection. Because it's the resurrection that gives us hope, a sense of peace and comfort. It's the resurrection that gives us the hope of heaven and a future eternity with God. And obviously, it's the resurrection that we'll be talking about today. Also today, today is actually the last sermon that we're going to have in our fall sermon series on 1 Corinthians. And I don't know about you, but I have thoroughly enjoyed this book that when the Apostle Paul came to Corinth in 51 AD, uh, Corinth was the, was the largest church 
uh, sorry, the largest city in Greece. It was five times larger than Athens. And because of its unique location, it was the kind of a mecca of trade in the Mediterranean. The educated, the elite, the entrepreneur, and the entertainer all flocked to Corinth. And people of diverse uh, cultures came in and therefore then had this rich diversity of culture, religion, language, food, and other amenities. Sounds a lot like Vancouver, doesn't it? And I think it's that context which helps us uh, learn from the church in Corinth. Paul planted the church there. He lived there for a year and a half. But three or four years after he leaves, he begins to hear things. He begins to hear that there are cliques that are starting to develop in the church. He begins to hear that there is division. He begins to hear that there are divided among issues such as sexuality and divorce and remarriage and the eating of meat offered to idols and the improper eating of the Lord's Supper and spiritual gifts and so on and so on. And so he decides to write them this letter. And in the last chapter of the book or the second last chapter of the book, he begins to address questions specifically about the resurrection for two reasons. First, it would seem that the people in Corinth were starting to question not only the resurrection of Jesus, like, did he really come back to life? But also questions about the resurrection of the dead. What happens when we die? Will we just become spirit up in heaven? Do we actually get new bodies? But the second reason why Paul begins this long dialogue is that the resurrection is at the crux of our faith. We celebrated Easter Sunday just last week, right? Christ has risen. Oh, that's good. These are brand new believers, right? The first generation of believers ever. And Paul wanted them to truly understand the central importance of the resurrection when it came to their faith. That without the resurrection, without belief in it, your faith then is useless and empty. And so in the longest chapter in the book, in fact, the longest sustained argument that Paul will ever write, 58 verses, Paul addresses the issue of resurrection. Jesus' resurrection and the future resurrection of those who believe in Him. So with that, let's get started. Paul's going to begin in chapter 15 in verse 1, and he writes this. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. So Paul doesn't pull any punches. He starts right off, and he wants to remind the Corinthians about the crux of their faith, of the gospel. Without the gospel, you are not saved. So what is the gospel? Well, Paul continues in verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And when we read asleep in the passage, it means those that have passed away. Then He appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, He appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And that's the gospel in four succinct lines and movements. First, Christ died on the cross for our sins. Second, He was buried. Third, He raised on the third day. And fourth, He appeared to over 500 people, including Paul, abnormally on the road to Damascus. That's it. That's the gospel message. Jesus died. He was buried. But He did not stay dead. He came back to life on the third day. And now, even now, by His Spirit, appears and shows up to each and every one of us. That's the gospel message, and it is in believing in the gospel 
that Paul says we are saved. And when Paul uses the word saved, what he's talking about is we are saved from the past of our sins, we are saved presently now in where we are at, and we are saved for future glory. And either you believe it or you do not. So Paul now turns to what it means to be saved in the future. So starting in verse 12 of our passage, Paul writes this, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn Christ the firstfruits, then when He comes, those who belong to Him, then the end will come when He hands over the kingdom to God the Father after He has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Paul makes it very clear that the last enemy is death. There are two things you cannot avoid, death and taxes. By the way, if you've not done your taxes, you have two days, but no pressure. <laughs> death casts its long shadow. Death you cannot avoid. Death, Paul says, is the last enemy, but our culture warps death. We don't know how to deal with it in our culture, and usually it actually is expressed in two different ways. The first response is one of denial. To deny death happens. Let's avoid it. Let's not think about it. Let's not talk about it. And even when we talk about it, it's in these weird generalizations, euphemisms, and cliches, right? Oh, he kicked the bucket, or she bit the dust, or my favorite, that he's gone to Davy Jones' locker, whatever that means. We don't know how to embrace death. In fact, having been to enough funerals in my life, there's almost a sense of embarrassment that happens at funerals. Oh, I'm sorry that she died and has caused you so much trouble. That's so much, it was so embarrassing for you. Like, it's the weirdest thing that people do at funerals. That we, first response is to deny death. But the second reason is that we get sentimental about it. We sentimentalize death. That death, we decide it's natural. It's part of the seasons. It's beautiful. It's a kuna matata, the circle of life. Back in the ancient Near East, you actually, due to the heat and uh, humidity, you have to embalm someone right after they pass away because you don't worry, want to worry about the decomposition and the odor, right? But not here in the West. We put them in caskets after pumping them with formaldehyde and not even just caskets, open caskets. And we walk past and go, oh, doesn't he look nice? That's a really nice suit. The other parts of the world think we're crazy. It's just cosmetic. It's, it's a way of kind of hiding the reality of death. Friends, death is not our friend. Death is not natural. Death is wrong. In verse 26, Paul calls death the last enemy. And I think we all know deep down that we are not meant to die. That's not what we were created for, to be. That we were created with God to be with Him for eternity. But because of sin, but because of pride and the ugliness of hatred, the wages of sin is death. But Jesus, Jesus changes all that, right? Romans 6.23 puts it so beautifully. The wages of sin is death, yes, but the gift of God is eternal life in and through Jesus Christ. Death does not get the final word. Jesus gets the final word. 
And as Paul puts it, Jesus is the first fruits of the dead. That Jesus is the first to be reborn, and through his resurrection, it leads to a chain of events. First Jesus, and because of him, we are his second fruit, and third fruit, and fourth fruit, and fifth fruit, and so on, and so on, and so on. That his resurrection shows his power over death and sin and guarantees our resurrection. Not only ours, but the restoration of all things. I love how N.T. Wright puts it when he writes this. With Jesus' resurrection, he insists, a new world has opened up in which the all-embracing power of sin and death no longer holds sway. The world we know, the world whose loveliness, majesty, fragrance, and teeming life are mocked by death, decay, corruption, and sheer entropy, has heard the news that there is, after all, a way forward, a way into a life yet greater, more beautiful, more powerful than this one. Isn't that great? In Christ, all is made alive again. He makes all things new. Paul goes on in this chapter, and I encourage you to read this entire chapter uh, this week, as also in preparation for your study in your small groups. But then Paul skips over to what I think is the grand finale in verse 50 when he writes this. And then next slide. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality. Continuing on. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul asserts that there's going to be a last trumpet and that we will all be changed or better translated, we will all be transformed. Now, the trumpet is, I don't know, maybe it is, but maybe it's probably not a literal trumpet like this loud noise we will all hear, but a metaphor for a momentous occasion. Like when a trumpet is blown at the final battle, when the king has won and is about to enter victoriously into the city, that at this last trumpet, at that glorious moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in a flash, Jesus the king returns. He's going to come down and bring heaven with him. He's going to come down for us. And whether we are already dead or whether we are alive, in an instant, in a moment, we will be transformed. We will be changed or transformed and given new bodies. And like what some people, especially Greeks at the time, believed, we're not going to become these spiritual, ethereal, ghost-like spirits, but we're going to be physical, embodied people. Different than what we are now, but not completely unlike having the bodies we have now. So what's the difference between our old, present bodies and these new resurrected bodies? The best metaphor I read about this compares our present body with the new resurrected body as being similar to having an old car and a new car. 
And it's not like that if the old car was made out of metal, then the uh, new car would be made out of, I don't know, plastic, polymer, or vibranium, or something like that. No, our new resurrected bodies will probably be very similar, right? Bones, sinew, blood, and all. No, the big difference, the difference between the two, between our present bodies and our new resurrected bodies, is what these bodies will run on. What fills us up or what animates or powers our existence. Not gasoline or electricity anymore, but something else. For our new resurrected bodies, not necessarily our lungs and blood will keep us alive, which they will to some extent, but something else, something more. And that something else is God's Spirit. The Spirit that dwells within us, that keeps us running, that powers our being. And get this, the Spirit creates this body that it won't ever wear out, that it won't experience entropy like my knees when I try to walk down the stairs and they creak. It's a body built for eternity. Jesus himself, as the first fruits, already possesses this body. And I don't know what it's going to look like, but I imagine being able to worship God like all the time in this profound uh, way that is never experienced here on earth, but able to do it physically, walking up and down every single mountain that there is in heaven. As Gordon Fee puts it brilliantly, he writes this, bodily, but in a body adapted to the new conditions of the future, there is both continuity and discontinuity. The present body is earthly, natural, subject to decay. The raised body is heavenly, spiritual, and incorruptible. The final result, therefore, is a glorious resurrection transformation of both the dead and the living, wherein the final enemy, death, is swallowed up in victory. Paul then ends, as we just read, with this taunt. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Paul taunts death. He makes fun of it. I mean, who can make fun of death? We can. Because on the cross, Jesus took on death's sting. Like a bee or scorpion out to get, him, get us, Jesus takes on death's sting, takes out the stinger, and lives and gives us the ultimate victory. A couple of years ago, someone um, asked me if I'd be willing to go to the hospital to offer communion to her mother-in-law who was dying. And I said, of course, and so I went. The mother-in-law was 94 years old. She had lost her husband 50 years ago and raised these three kids up on her, by herself. She had gone faithfully to church all her life, and she loved Jesus. And since she had fallen ill, she had not been to church for months and had not taken communion for months either. And as soon as I walked in the hospital room, the son was ecstatic, right? This is beautiful, this is beautiful, he said. She's, she's actually awake, she's alert for the very first time in like a long time. This is beautiful, it's like she knew you were coming. So I read a psalm, I prayed for her. And then she couldn't really take the elements, and this became really awkward because I had to actually try to kind of force the bread down her mouth. And then with a little juice, I tried to pour it down. So she, I, did, I was so worried about choking her, right, and uh, to drop it down her throat. In our Reformed tradition, communion is not only a symbol. It's much more than that. There's this mystery. There's this magic to it that we receive blessing when we come to the, to the sacraments, that we are better off coming to have to come to the table than, than we are without. It was indeed beautiful. So after communion, the daughter-in-law, the son, and the two kids began to sing a song over her, and the lyrics of the song was, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. With thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. 
So this dying woman at that time began to try to sing this song. And by then, we were all crying. Friends, that's the hope of the resurrection. Friends, that's the hope of the resurrection. That this woman, even on her deathbed, is dying but with hope. The hope that Jesus is present with her and will always be present with her. That nothing, not even death, can separate us from the immense love of God. That Jesus has victory and power over death. And this victory and this woman will have a new body that awaits for her in heaven where she will enjoy the presence of God forever. Do you believe that? Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe that Jesus was born, that he died, was raised, ascended, and is coming back for us? In the Gospel of John, when Jesus shows up to the tomb of Lazarus, and, and this is right before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, so you obviously know Jesus is foreshadowing his own and what he can do. He says to Lazarus' sister Martha, he says these amazing words in John 11, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus makes it very clear that there is no resurrection apart from him, and there is no life like real abundant life on earth without him. Both resurrection and life are totally dependent on Jesus. I am, Jesus says, the resurrection and the life. So Jesus comes to Martha and asks her this question, do you believe this? And there are only two responses to that question. Either you believe it or you do not. Jesus comes to Martha and asks her, do you believe this? And I think that's the question that Jesus and Paul ask us today, to question and give us the question of ourselves. Do I believe that Jesus was born for me? Do I believe that he died for me? Do I believe that he was raised from the dead for me? Do I believe that he ascended to the right hand of God for me? And do I believe that he will come back one day for me? Look, I don't know whether you, where you are in your Christian journey. Some of you are maybe brand new to this. This might be the first time you've ever been into church, and, and, and I want you to come back and learn more. Maybe you're new, and maybe you've heard this story over and over again, but my hope and my prayer is wherever you're whether, wherever you are on this journey, to believe. Whether it's for your first time or for your hundredth time, believe. Say yes to Jesus. Because saying yes to Jesus will bring light, beauty, peace, life, grace, love, and hope. Hope for tomorrow and hope of glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we confess our sins, and Father God, we acknowledge that you indeed died, but you did not stay dead, and you came back to life. And Father God, we believe that, and Father God, we now ask for your Spirit to be within us, to be among us. We accept what happened to be truth, and we say yes to your Son, Jesus. So come, Spirit, come and continue to speak to us. Continue to grow us more faithful, a better disciple of your Son, Jesus. 
May our yeses be yeses, and may we say yes to Jesus every day of our lives here on earth, and then, therefore, every day of our lives in glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you.